So today we're continuing our five-part series on qualities of a top venture capitalist. So as we covered last week, many venture capitalists are initially screened on their abilities by how many deals they see. You know, again, their sourcing capabilities. It's the first test of a good venture capitalist that shows you are curious, have hustle, and a strong network. But as I said, the hardest part about running a venture capital firm, in my opinion at least, and what I'm sure many people would agree with me, and what separates the good venture capitalists from the great ones, is our topic for today, which is picking. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the qualities top venture capitalists have when determining which company to invest in after they see it. After all, top VC firms like Sequoia, Benchmark, Kleiner Perkins, and A16Z see hundreds to thousands of companies in a year and invest in maybe 10. It's an extremely selective process that judges venture capitalists on which deals they saw and invested in, which deals they saw and passed on, and how many companies within each bucket succeeded. The last thing a VC wants is to add a billion dollar company to their anti-portfolio section, as we cover often on this podcast, as one they saw but passed on. Those are the worst metrics. The best metrics are IRRs and fund multiples, which are directly correlated to how many companies you invested in that became valuable. So today we'll discuss how to be a better picker as a venture capitalist by first, avoiding FOMO, but not bargain hunting. Number two, having an open mind and a prepared mind. And number three, having confidence. So let's jump into the first point of avoiding FOMO, but not bargain hunting. So venture capital is a funny industry because there are a lot of follow the leader tendencies. There are many firms that just follow whatever Sequoia and Benchmark do because, well, if they invested, then the company must be promising, right? It's Sequoia and Benchmark, two of the top firms to ever do it. But this is very lazy investing, and it typically only works in frothy markets. After all, even Sequoia-backed startups have certainly less than a 50% chance of having some type of exit and probably less than a 25% chance of reaching $100 million in revenue, what many would consider a successful, everlasting business. I don't have numbers to confirm this, but I think it's a safe estimate based on my research. So maybe you have a better chance of backing great companies by following Sequoia. But that company is going to come at a higher price because of that Sequoia stamp of approval. Also, the round will likely be so hot that you'll maybe get a small check into the company if you're lucky. To hammer my point, Sequoia, former Sequoia CEO Doug Leone once said, quote, Don't practice FOMO, which can be hard in venture since Signal is huge in this industry. Oh, Sequoia invested, so it must be good. But Sequoia is still only breaking out on 20 to 30% of their companies, maybe. So it's a better signal, but it's not a sure thing, end quote. So maybe the Sequoia signal means that this company has a 20% chance of succeeding rather than a 10% chance for a non-Sequoia-backed company. Again, these are just blanket assumptions. But like I said, it comes at a higher price. You know, Rather than that company being at a $10 million valuation with that Sequoia stamp of approval, it might be at a $20 million valuation. And that higher price means you won't be able to invest in as many other startups that have that lower valuation. For example, you can't do two... million investments because you did one $20 million investment. So there's the risk that comes with that. And after all, Sequoia is not perfect. I mean, for every 
Instacart in the Sequoia portfolio, there's a web van. And for every Airbnb in the Sequoia portfolio, there's an FTX. So it's never a sure thing. And it's almost always expensive. The other way an investor follows FOMO and stumbles into an expensive round is by following a hot industry. And look no further than AI investing in 2023. It basically felt like the dot-com bubble where every company put dot-com in their name and raised around. This time, however, companies were just putting .ai in their name and raising around. So, so many companies are getting funded, but there will only be a few real everlasting winners. AI is also such a fast-moving and unpredictable industry that hundreds of text-to-video AI companies were likely funded in 2023, and all their valuations probably just went to zero after OpenAI released their Sora tool which is remarkable and I'm sure far better than what any startup was building. So practicing FOMO is undisciplined and will likely make you a bad picker. Being a good picker requires not taking the easy route and following what everyone else is doing, not just following Sequoia, not just following Benchmark. Rather, it requires studying industries and trends and how defensible incumbents are and where the niche opportunities with breakout potential are and and so on. Every investment requires thorough analysis and lazy investors never succeed. Maybe in frothy markets, they'll look good on paper, but when that market comes down, they'll get crushed. They never succeed. I do have one caveat though. Sometimes investing in a hot company that's seemingly overvalued is absolutely the right thing to do. It's interesting because some of the most expensive rounds have been in companies like Google and Uber, therefore VC firms like Benchmark, in the case of Google, and A16Z, in the case of Uber, passed on opportunities to invest because of the high price. You may think, well, who cares about price? If the company is crushing it, then why wouldn't you invest? Price should be irrelevant at that early of a stage. Benchmark and A16Z were stupid for passing at any valuation while these companies were private. You know, Uber at $300 million is a lot less than Uber at $150 billion. So there's two things to that. First, No startup is ever a sure thing for a venture capitalist until it hits a major liquidity event like an IPO or an acquisition. There's always the risk of new companies coming in and disrupting them, the incumbents eventually crushing the startup, the CEO or top employees leaving, fraudulent behavior, getting handicapped via a platform change like Apple, and so on. It's never a sure thing until it's a sure thing. So even though Uber was crushing it, when it came time to raise their Series B, they were still only a few years old and had so much regulatory pressure. Now, that company could have shut down any day if its users stopped loving the product and no longer signed petitions to keep Uber running. It was faced with a lot of regulatory pressure. The second reason a high price is difficult is because that investment is part of a larger fund that's allocated across many investments. Like I mentioned earlier, If you're paying for one company at a $20 million valuation, that means you won't be able to invest in two companies at a $10 million valuation like you initially planned for. And maybe one of those $10 million valuation companies could have been the next WhatsApp or Coinbase. So you don't have unlimited money. You are constrained by your fund and you still have to hit that number, that 20 or 30 startups you invest in in order to have a power law occur within your fund. So price can be very stressful which is why many investors have passed on high-value companies, as we've covered so many times in the anti-portfolio section in this podcast. And I've speculated in the past that 
High valuations seem to be a signal to tell an investor to invest based on how many times I've covered investors passing on expensive companies. I mean, they're expensive because other investors are smart. So that company is probably expensive because it has a greater chance of succeeding than the average startup and other people are giving it that price. Jeff Jordan, actually, a partner at A16Z, has gone so far to say that an expensive round is actually a strong signal for him to invest. He once said, quote, you have to continue to be adopting your decision framework. One framework was whenever I saw a bargain, I should run. It's a sign of no heat. Whenever I did a bargain, I regretted it later. Whenever I was forced to pay up, to date, that has been a very good basket of companies, end quote. So I don't know if the lesson here is practice FOMO and pay up for the expensive companies or don't practice FOMO and be more methodical with your investments and non-consensus. Unfortunately, there's no right answer. Both can be right if the investor pays up for the right companies and passes on the overly frothy trends. There's a reason this is such a competitive industry with so few exceptional firms because it's really hard. I mean, I've never been in the room, but I can imagine debating whether to invest, you know, 50 million, 25 million, or even $1 million of nonprofit and university endowment money into companies is very stressful. I'd imagine it's necessary to have like a Zen-like mindset to see through the froth and avoid the FOMO to find the hidden gems or invest in the breakout companies despite the high price. It's just difficult. There's no right answer to this question. So don't be cheap, but don't be greedy. Just just get it right, I guess. <laughs> so there's really no right answer, unfortunately. In the second section, similarly, there's no right answer. <laughs> this section is about having a open mind versus having a prepared mind. The second key aspect of being a good picker as a venture capitalist. Last week, we talked about producing content as a beacon for founders to find you. That's how Apurva Meta at Instacart found Jeff Jordan and so on. By publishing content regarding what you're thinking about, what companies you want to back, what you look for in founders, and so on, you're signaling to founders building in your domain to come find you. And as we talked about, that's a fantastic sourcing strategy. Some investors would call this having a prepared mind because you're so thoroughly researching a topic that you're ready for anything an entrepreneur building in that field presents to you. Whatever new technology they talk about, You've studied it so much that you've been able to write a piece about it and you've honed your thinking so well that you're almost at the level of knowledge as that entrepreneur. You have that prepared of a mind. So when that entrepreneur comes, you're ready to jump on the opportunity. The only potential downside of this is getting too caught up in your investment thesis and missing out on a breakout company outside of your target domain. Benchmark partner Chetan Putagunta describes this problem with being too thesis-driven as he said, quote, if you were to ask me what the 10 requests for startups that I have are, it's zero. You have to be completely open-minded to that insight that the entrepreneur has discovered. And that insight is really spectacular when you hear it with a completely open mind. You also have a prepared mind about opportunities, of course. And that comes from just learning in public or learning across your network. But I think just having a very, very open mind about what could potentially work is key. Keeping an open mind and not being too thesis-driven, or else you can miss some great investments. Good to have a prepared mind, but an open mind is just as important, end quote. For example, benchmark partner Sarah Tavel 
is one of the most prolific marketplace and consumer social investors around today. She wrote a three-part series on the hierarchy of marketplaces that is still frequently referred to several years later. But despite being known for this industry, Tavo displayed an open mind when she invested in the company Chainalysis. And Chainalysis essentially helps federal agencies like the DOJ investigate potentially fraudulent blockchain transactions and technologies. So clearly that investment has nothing to do with marketplaces or consumer social apps. A crypto investigation service for the DOJ, I mean, that's about as far from a consumer marketplace as you could get. Certainly, Tavel has a thesis and a sweet spot in marketplaces, but as with all great investors, she has an open mind regardless of her investing sweet spot. When the Chainalysis team presented their company to her, she looked into it with the same due diligence and intent to invest as any other company she'd consider investing in, marketplace or not. And as a result, Benchmark probably owns one and a half to two billion dollars worth of Chainalysis stock, company that was last valued at eight and a half billion dollars, solely attributed to Tavel keeping an open mind and not being too thesis driven. So a good investor has to maintain an open mind because they never know where the next great company is going to come from. And so at the beginning, I sort of talked about this section as having an open mind versus a prepared mind, you know, which better for an investor. And I don't think it's really an either or. That's not the best title. I think a great investor has both an open mind and a prepared mind. <laughs> like I touched on in the last section, there's no right answer here. But having an open mind and having a prepared mind, again, is why Sarah Tavel led the Series A in consumer social companies like Pinterest, one of her biggest wins, and blockchain investigation technologies for the DOJ, like Chainalysis, potentially one of her other biggest wins. So despite all this you know, open mind praise I'm preaching, doing the work and having a prepared mind is still necessary to being a top venture capitalist. You need both. And for example, here's how former partner at Kleiner Perkins John Doerr, describes having a prepared mind. He once said, quote, you must bring a prepared mind to these decisions. I think it's important to read, learn, and bring curiosity and energy. Work to stay abreast of what's important and why. It's not enough to know that Bitcoin is a new means of conveying value. You ought to know how Bitcoin works and what the physics behind the technology is. That gives you a better opportunity to understand what the innovators and entrepreneurs are saying. End quote. So in this quote, what Dorr describes is less of a thesis-driven, prepared mind and more of a learn-everything-possible-about-innovative-technologies-prepared mind. You know, his definition of having a prepared mind is essentially to be smart enough to talk with the best entrepreneurs building in those fields. You know, obviously, it seems like a lot of work, but it allows Dorr to move fast on deals if he understands what the entrepreneur is saying. As I said, the prepared mind advantage is knowing about the technologies the entrepreneur is presenting to you when they come to you in that meeting. So you're able to work quick because you don't have to do as much due diligence on the technology to understand you know, if what the entrepreneur is saying is actually true or could actually work. And that's why I really like Doors' line in that quote of, it's not enough to know that Bitcoin is a means of conveying value. You ought to know how Bitcoin works and what the physics behind it is and the technology. I think this desire to learn separates average investors from exceptional ones. You know, very few investors, if any at all, go as deep as John Doerr into understanding a technology. 
He's invested across many decades, across many technological trends to know so much about different technologies. Again, maybe not to the extent of the entrepreneur building in that industry, but at least enough to hold a thorough conversation and to analyze this investment opportunity thoroughly. I think so few investors do this because there are so many technologies to learn. You know, the technological landscape moves so fast and it seems in 2024, it's moving at a blistering pace. You know, many investors say this is the hardest they've ever worked because there's so much opportunity at the beginning of such a massive innovation cycle, but there's also a lot of noise. So the best investors will thoroughly study the innovation changes to sift through the noise and find exceptional entrepreneurs innovating for a revolutionary company. Benchmark partner Chetan Putaguntu, we mentioned earlier, actually echoes John Doerr's point in how important understanding subject matter experts is when he said, quote, I think one of the two things that I have found over time in terms of just being really efficient at learning is that one, being able to talk to other people that are subject matter experts and being able to ask them the right questions to learn from them very quickly. And then two, synthesizing very complex information into digestible ideas that can then be translated and communicated into the group are two really powerful abilities, end quote. There's a joke that's essentially true that every VC either went to Stanford Business School or Harvard Business School. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I think it's ridiculous too, like many others, but I do understand it as a screening mechanism, you know, to hire the smartest people in the world. Like Chaitan said, you have to be really good at learning, as in you not only have to work hard, but you also just have to be really smart naturally, so you can pick up on things quickly. And so I suppose a VC who's good at picking has both an open mind and a prepared mind, you know, a willingness to learn a lot of different technologies, not being too thesis-driven, but understanding subject matter experts well enough in any field that's presented to you that you can make a quick investment decision about it. Which goes into the case of you have to be naturally smart and hardworking. So if you can digest and synthesize information from you know, your own research and thorough conversations with subject matter experts, then you'll be in a much better position than investors who can't do this to the degree you can, can't synthesize information as well as you can. And this is the reason why there's only a few venture capitalists that are, you know, household names in the industry out of the thousands that participate in it. It's because these are the smartest and hardest working individuals and therefore can learn and synthesize new information quickly, whether it's aligned with their thesis or not. And because of this, they can decide better than most other investors on whether the company they're meeting with will succeed, as in whether to pick this company to invest. So again, to conclude, you kind of need an open mind. You, know, you have to be able to listen to an entrepreneur portray a completely new idea that you never thought about because you've never studied that industry. But at the same time, you have to study a lot of new technologies. Whatever is a hot trend right now, you have to understand it so that when that entrepreneur comes to you with that new technology, you understand it enough to make a quick investment. So to be a good picker, really, at the end, you need to have an open mind. You need to be able to listen attentively, but you also have to have a prepared mind. And you have to study a lot to be able to understand what top entrepreneurs are saying. Only then can you find and pick the best companies to invest in. So the last key point, after we've already talked about avoiding FOMO, but not bargain hunting, after we talked about having an open mind and a prepared mind, 
as if that wasn't enough. You could have all four of those abilities, but if you don't have confidence, the last trait that we're about to talk about now in our picking discussion, then you won't get very far in venture capital at all. So I'm saying this because a venture capital portfolio typically follows a J curve. So for those who don't know, a J curve is a curve on the graph that's in the shape of a J. <laughs> Hold on, I'll do better. So on the X, Y axis, X is the number of years, Y is the IRR, let's say. So in a J curve, it starts at zero, zero years, zero IRR. Typically in the first two years, that J curve goes negative, goes down in the shape of a J. So after two years, you might have a negative 5% IRR because, you know, let's say a VC fund invests in 30 companies tracked on a 10-year time horizon. Well, since most startups fail, maybe 20 of those 30 companies will fail within two years. Well, maybe five of them got marked up and as in raised a higher valuation and maybe five remained at the same valuation as when you invested. Therefore, it's likely you have a negative returning portfolio, you know, two years into the fund. You're at that low point of that J curve, that negative 5% IRR at the two year mark, let's say. And many VC funds, even the top ones, even Sequoia, even Benchmark experience the J curve. The positive side of the J curve is if one or two of those 30 companies break out to be billion dollar companies, they more than exceed the losses incurred by the other 28 or 29 companies in this example. Therefore, the fund experiences an exponential growth period in the later years of the fund once all the losing investments have hit zero, because then it's all upside from there. So on the J curve, as we talked about, 20 of your companies went to zero. You're at the low point two years in, you're at a negative 5% IRR. But then from there, it's all upside. If your companies keep raising at a higher valuation, maybe some settle for decent acquisitions, but maybe some keep going up to reach those billion dollar multiples. Now your J-curve just goes higher and higher and higher. And maybe after 10 years, you're at a 25% IRR, for example. If I didn't explain that well, you can go to the Substack. I have a chart in the Substack. Again, all things VC on Substack. There'll be a link in the show notes. You can check out the chart and my explanation there if that didn't make sense. But essentially, it follows a J. <laughs> so the point is, it's easy to doubt your picking abilities even if you're a genius and work harder than any of your peers, you, know, you could have gone to Stanford Business School, graduated top of your class, you could work 100 hours a week, but you still experience this J-curve. After two years, you'll still have this negative 5% IRR because unfortunately or fortunately, there's still a lot of luck in this business. And it can be a very long time until you actually know whether you're good at it. You won't know after the first few years because you'll probably be experiencing a negative or flat performing portfolio. You won't know if you're good until, you know, year seven, year five, year nine, when you start that, you know, high growth harvesting phase of all your winners. So the J curve can be a grueling experience. And the other downside of venture is that if you don't have a strong performing fund in your first fund, it'll be a lot harder to raise another fund. And that first fund could very well be your last. Now, if your first venture capital fund only gets a 10% IRR, versus, you know, 15% in the NASDAQ, or even worse, if you get like a 2% IRR, which is very possible, you're probably not going to be able to raise another fund. You got to outperform to be able to keep raising funds. So there's a lot of pressure in this business and seeing early signs of failure can weigh on someone. Now, even the great venture capitalist, Bill Gurley, had difficulties experiencing the J-curve when he first started. He once said, quote, 
the vast majority of venture capitalists don't have a liquidity event until year eight or nine. And so it's easy to doubt yourself. And three years in, people like to use the child age analogy. You've got 12-year-olds becoming 13-year-olds, and your whole portfolio's got acne all over their face, and you can really lose confidence. So a lot of my partners, again, partners back at the time in the 90s at Benchmarks, were like, it's going to be okay. Get back out there. You're good. You're doing fine. And that kind of thing was way more helpful than you could possibly imagine because the anxiety was spiking. You need to trust that this partner will remain confident and won't hesitate on the next investment because their current portfolio doesn't look great. They have to have short memory and keep fighting, end quote. And so luckily, Bill had a good team around him to give him that support. But at the end of the day, he says, you have to have a short memory and you have to keep fighting. You must have confidence. You can't let those first two or three years of your investing career handicap the next six years of your investing career because you have to make great investments if you want to stay in this industry. And so I know many people use sports analogies with business investing, which is pretty absurd and funny, but it's easy to do. So I understand why people do it. So I'm going to do it too. So it has reminded me when talking about the J curve and having to get back out there, having to keep making investments. It's like when Kobe Bryant said he'd rather go over 30 in a game than over 10 in a game because going over 10 means you gave up, which I just so love that quote. Only Kobe would say something like that. But the point is a venture capitalist must make a lot of investments. Most say at least 20, probably more like 30 in a fund to have at least one outsized winner that returns more of the entire fund. Again, only 10% of startups succeed, so you have to hit one or two of those 10 to make up for the losses of the other nine or 18 or whatever. So if your first 10 investments in companies aren't performing well, you can start to feel the pressure that your next 10 investments are really important. And so maybe you'll tell yourself you have to be slower and have a higher bar of excellence for your next investments. But if you lose confidence and start second guessing yourself in your original thesis that you once considered sound, you could miss out on some exceptional investments. So obviously a good investor is constantly reevaluating himself or herself. So changing an investment thesis isn't always a bad thing. Of course, you should be reiterating you know, what you think. You'll learn more, you'll improve. But if you're changing it so early in your investing life, then that's a problem. That shows you're already doubting yourself before you even gave your thesis a real chance. So what do you do in this position? You're smart, you work harder than all of your peers, and you have fantastic inbound from your sourcing abilities, yet you still have a portfolio with negative IRR two years in. How do you fight through that daily stress of that negative IRR constantly looking at you every day? And how do you attend every meeting with a founder with the same conviction to invest you had at the beginning of the fund? But once again, Bill Gurley, who I've mentioned hundreds of times on this podcast because I think he's incredible, shared some wisdom with us. He emphasized that the key to success in this business is constantly having a bias in your head when meeting with every investment with the mindset of, quote, what could go right? He once said, quote, if you invest in something that doesn't work, you lose one time your money. If you miss Google, you lose 10,000 times your money. You have to orient yourself toward, as Bruce Dunleavy, a former partner at Benchmark, used to say, what could go right? And you have to think that way all the time. Venture capital has remarkably asymmetric returns. You have to ask yourself, 
How high could up be? And then, you know, the what could go right question. Because it's not a 50-50 thing on this judgment call. Like if you thought there was a 20% chance of this investment succeeding, you should still do it because the upside is so high, end quote. So what Bill Gerlitz here is describing the power law, which is the foundation of the venture capital business. So venture capitalist has to remember that, you know, the worst an investment can do is lose all that money in the original investment. Call it $1 million. But the best an investment can do is infinite. You know, maybe that $1 million turns into $10 million. Maybe it turns into $100 million. Maybe it turns into a billion. You don't know. The upside is infinite. So if you can't have confidence in yourself and your picking abilities, which, again, you really need if you want to be a great venture capitalist, then you at least have to have confidence in the power law playing out as it should. <laughs> you at least have to believe that if you invest in a certain number of companies, at least one of those has to make it unless you're really bad at this job. <laughs> so again, going back to confidence, confidence is so important to picking because, you know, as I said, a great VC will see hundreds of companies in a year. Let's call it 300, about one a day. That VC is probably only investing in 10 to maybe 15 companies per year for an early stage funds. So not only do you have to say no 290 times, you have to trust that your 10 yeses will return multiples greater than your entire fund. So I don't know about you, but that ratio definitely stresses me out. And, you know, the worst part, the 10 you invested in, you could have passed on two that, you know, already had a markup, already looked great. And you could be worried about the 10 you invested in performing worse than the two you passed on or the 20 you passed on. There's so many companies that succeed. So a great VC just has to maintain confidence, has to maintain that mindset of what could go right if this company succeeds. Now, I'm sure it's a constant mental battle that tests even the savviest investors well into their career, let alone investors new to the industry in their first fund. So perhaps now you understand why I consider picking which companies to invest in the hardest part of being a venture capitalist. I'm not sure whether other investors agree with me or not, but I'd assume most do. And let's recap why. So first, you have to be non-consensus and avoid FOMO when investing in companies. Now, sometimes you'll be correct about an investment and firms like Sequoia will be wrong. Like we talked about with Excel India investing in Flipkart when Sequoia said no several times. But I'm sure it's hard to think that you're right and they're wrong. And at the same time, you can't avoid investing in expensive companies that maybe have the Sequoia or benchmark stamp of approval because as Jeff Jordan said, most of his best performing investments were all at an expensive valuation. So it's a fine line between being either very non-consensus to find a hidden gem, undervalued asset, or being consensus and paying a premium for it to invest in the expected winners, you know, like the Airbnbs and like the Stripes when the Series B comes around, for example. So practice FOMO, but don't bargain hunt. <laughs> and next, you know, after you cover that base, Next, you have to study every interesting technology that entrepreneurs are building in. You, know, you have to understand B2B software, AI productivity tools, clean energy, blockchain technology, consumer marketplaces, on and on and on. And sure, some investors are thesis-driven and stay in their lane, but had Sarah Tavel refrained from being open-minded, she would have missed Chainalysis, which is likely to be one of the best investments in her career. So you have to be able to synthesize a lot of difficult information from experts in their field 
to make a decision whether to put millions of dollars into a company you knew nothing about just a few weeks ago. And if that wasn't enough, most of the companies you invest at a premium or at a non-consensus valuation or in a technology you just binged about, most of those companies will quickly fail. <laughs> and despite that, you have to remain confident in your abilities with the mindset of what could go right on each investment so you don't miss the next great startup. So you have to avoid FOMO in the frothy trends, but invest at a premium in the trends in companies that truly are going to succeed. So you have to be able to identify that, first of all. Second of all, you have to have an open mind. You have to be able to understand everything that an entrepreneur is saying, whether it's within your typical thesis or not, which can only be done by having a prepared mind on many different technologies and learning as much information as you possibly can. And last, you have to have confidence that you're gonna that your investments will work out despite the likely negative signals early on in the portfolio. You have to trust that the power law will play out. You have to trust that your thesis is correct. So you need all three of those contradicting, challenging, moving parts to all mesh well together so that you can have an outperforming fund. So as we touched on, you can source the best deals. You can find the 300 best companies. Out of those 300, you can pick 10 that you're sure are going to be winners that you want to invest in. And, you know, you, you do all these things. You, you know, you're curious and you hustle to find the best entrepreneurs, to find innovative technologies. You're constantly networking. You're going to all the talks. You're meeting with so many students, building in that domain, so many experts across other industries or companies you've invested in. You're producing content all the time as a beacon for founders to find you. And then you're avoiding FOMO, but you're not bargain hunting. And you're having an open mind, but also a prepared mind. And you have confidence in yourself and your abilities. And you can go through all those stages to find this one company that you can't wait to invest in, that you think is going to be a real winner. The problem is, despite all of that, that founder could say no to you. <laughs> you could do all that work. And then the entrepreneur says, no, I'm actually going to go with your direct competitor. <laughs> so while picking's perhaps the most important part of being a top venture capitalist, you still have to win the deal. So in the next episode of this five-part series, we'll discuss how a VC can avoid this heartbreak to win the investment they picked by being a good partner and being value additive to the entrepreneur and appealing to them to want to work with them. So stay tuned for that episode next week. I hope you're liking this five parts. I think it's really fun to take it step by step and fully understand the full picture of being a venture capitalist. But regardless, I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please rate it. Please subscribe if you want to hear the next part of the series. If you prefer to read rather than listen and you want a little more detailed information at some parts, you can check out this post on Substack. You can like and subscribe that post as well if you enjoyed it and you want to read the next episode. Also, you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to see clips from this episode. You can follow me on X if you want to see random tweets about the stuff I discuss or just random tweets about whatever pops in my head. But regardless, thank you for listening. Again, I hope you enjoyed this and I hope you come listen again to next week when we talk about how to win the deal you want to invest in by being value additive and being a good partner. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening and take care.